you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the, world. in the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times. Because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from the ChrisVossShow.com. Welcome to the show, my family and friends. We certainly appreciate you guys. Thanks for tuning in, as always. We just did our numbers where we pulled the last four years of the Chris Voss Show, and uh, we've increased our audience by over 1,405%. That's 1,405%. And if you don't think we're not going to brag the hell about that until the end of time, or at least the numbers go higher, you're not even kidding yourself. So we made a major change to the format in, what was it? Uh, 2000, February and March of 2000 with COVID, we decided we were going to change the world, quit talking about Silicon Valley crap all the time and CEO interviews and of big companies and open the scope up to everyone so that we could educate the world and make the world a better place. And that's what we have now. The, the CEOs, the billionaires, the White House presidential advisors, the astronauts, the people who write amazing books, stories, Pulitzer Prize winners, they bring to you their stories of life, their cathartic moments, their lessons of life. Because as we always say on the Chris Foss Show, the owner's manual to life are life's stories. I actually said it a different way, but, you know, we decided to reverse it this time. So anyway, we always have the most amazing people in minds here on the show, and I learned so much from the show. And if you don't, well, then you go back and listen to the damn shows because, Jesus Christ, we have some amazing people on here. And we have one again today. And it's not me, as always. I'm just the idiot with the mic. I think that's what we're going to rename the podcast, An Idiot with a Mic with really amazing guests. Matthew Zakrowski is on the show with us today. He is a doctor of neurodivergence and mental health expert. We're talking to him about his insights and how we can learn from some of the things that he does. He is a referred to as Dr. Matt. He's a, he's a psych doctor. I believe that's what PSD means, PSYD means. Is that what that means, Matt? Clinical psychologist, yeah. Clinical psychologist. There you go. I, I'm not f- up on the lingo since I'm usually on the other side of the room of psychologists rather than being in their chair. He is a high-energy, creative clinical psychologist and a professor, professional speaker who utilizes an eclectic approach to meet the specific needs of his neurodivergent clients. He is a proud to serve as the gifted community as a consultant and professor and an author and researcher. He's spoken over 400 times about all over the world about supporting neurodivergent people. He is also a frequent podcast guest. He can be found on many different platforms. He graduated from Widener University's Institute for Graduate Clinical Psychology in 2016. He is a co-founder and of the Neurodiversity Collective, which provides therapy, IQ testing, coaching, and consulting. Clearly, I need some of that. Welcome to the show, Matt. How are you? I'm great. I I am never I'm I'm never the second most energetic person in the room. So this is new for me. I'm like, <laughs> let's go. Like oh. I'm going through a wall for you, Chris Voss. I there you go. Let's do it. Let's go conquer the world. In the universe. We'll kick over some stuff. But first we'll do it on the show. But our, our audience loves guests that have energy. So thank you for coming and bringing it. So give us the dot coms. So where can people find you on the interwebs? So if you want me to come and speak to your organization, whether it's a school, 
or a business or a community organization, Boy Scout troop, whatever it might be, that's drmatsakreski.com. If you hear what we have to talk about today, be like, ah, yes, that's the kind of therapy I need, then the therapy practice is the neurodiversitycollective.com. I try to keep them separate because Dr. Matt is the brand, but you only get me if you want me to do a speaking thing. If you want therapy, I have a whole team of awesome people that you could talk to. There you go. There you go. So let's lay a foundation on some terms and stuff. And we got your .com, right? Where people could pull up the .com. I think we did, right? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I always make sure of that because the dot-coms are important. you got to get the plugs. It's all about the plugs, people. So go ahead, what? Yeah. There you go. So tell us, let's lay a foundation of what neurodivergence means and and, and, and what what that's up to and and how you work in that sphere. Yeah. So so there are two, broadly speaking, there are two different kinds of brains in the world. Mm-hmm. There are neurotypical brains. About 70% of people are neurotypical. Mm-hmm. Their brains are largely within what we would expect a brain to do for your age and what we, you know, what the world depends on you to do. There you go. And then there's the piece, people on Facebook and Twitter. Is that the other <laughs> yeah. brains? And then, yes, you read the YouTube comments section. You go, oh, 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 God. There's the other brains. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's when we get into personality disorders. That's a whole separate <laughs> podcast episode. Bipolar. Sorry, I'll come back. So, and then people with different brains are the remaining 30%, and that's ADHD, autism, OCD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, giftedness, which is my primary area of expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the more we learn about this, the more we realize, oh my gosh, like I can snapshot a picture of your brain and be like, check this out. That's what an ADHD brain looks like. And then people read it and they go, oh, because you still talk to people. You still hear people who are like, you know, I'm ADHD. I mean, that's just bad parenting. And I'm like, oh, I want to scream and throw this lovely cup of water you've given me across the room. But I'm just going to sit here nicely and until you stop talking so then I can talk. There you go. I'm glad to know I'm in the exceptional higher class of the 30% because no one wants to be with everyone else. And and I'm an ADHD client and also, I don't know, there's a joke there somewhere about hair. But now, does that include people on the spectrum, autism, savants, things like that? Sure does. There you go. You know. there you go. There you go. The uh, so I'm glad to be in the company of of everyone on that thirty percent. I've I have what you know what they normally term the CEO disease, the ADHD, and while it's can be a curse, it's made me a lot of goddamn money. So <laughs> let's go right. Absolutely. Yeah, yep. Yep. It's unlike my first 10 marriages that were just a curse. No, I'm just kidding, people. It's a joke. I've never been married. So give us a 30,000 overview of the work that you do and kind of what you're engaged in and what you're trying to accomplish out there in the world. So it, it all started with therapy, right? I mean, so I was seeing a lot of gifted kids, a lot of what we call twice exceptional kids, mm-hmm. kids with a gifted IQ and some other learning difference, another neurodivergence, ADHD, autism, that sort of thing. And the more I did that, the more I started going to conferences to learn more. And I was in these conferences and I kept thinking to myself, I could, I could do that. I could probably do that better than them. So <laughs> I started putting my words out there and people started responding to it. And that turned into, oh, I'll do some breakout sessions to, oh, you want me to come talk to your school to, oh, you want me to be the featured speaker at your conference to, oh, you're flying me to Europe 
to give six talks across a four day international event. Well, I just, I mean, I could, I could do that. I could, do, I, could, I, mean, I could do that. Right? Mm-hmm. Words M good I am could do that. And yes, it's still a little bit like terrifying and a little bit surreal, but the more I do it, the more people want me to do it. And I realize I, there are a lot of people out there who are carrying around these neurodivergent brains who don't know. Mm. You know. And there's a, one of my favorite things to say is there's a lot of value in knowing that you're a zebra. You're not a weird horse. There you go. You're yeah. not a weird horse. A lot of people walking out there going like, why is it that all the other horses are doing this thing? And I don't do that. Yeah. It might just be because you're a zebra. There's a, I think it was Carl Jung or it was one of those, one of those psychologist dudes. You probably know who it is, but they made a statement that the only measure of sanity is that the fact that the largest group of people who claim to have the most sanity and the, in the small group is in, must be insane thereby by population is the only measurement of sanity, but it doesn't mean we're all sane. Do you know who that was? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I'd have to dig through. Um, it's in there somewhere. I think it was Carl Jung or, you know, one of those guys who had a mother issue or something. But, you know, basically it, it's, we, I, I, you know, I grew up in society, you know, being called the, the dumb horse because of, because of the way I was. A lot of boys have trouble in school now because there's hardly any men in school. And, and so they're being called dysfunctional girls and treated as dysfunctional girls. We've got a lot of psychologists on that have talked about that and written books. There's a lot of, you know, a, up until a lot of time, people were thought of as being on the, they were on the spectrum or autism were thought as mentally less or viewed as mentally less. And so it's great that we're having these discussions. I mean, most of the savants, the most smartest people in the world are on the spectrum, are, are autistic. And they're, they're smart, you know, they're, they can run circles around all of us. So Matthew, how did you give us a little bit of background on you and your words? How did you grow up? Or are you part of the 30% or are you in the 70? No, oh, I sure am. I mean, and like, I think a lot of people in my field, this work is personal and professional, right? Yeah. I mean, I grew up as a gifted kid in Jersey in the nineties and mm-hmm. people kept using the word Einstein. They kept using the word Harvard. And all I felt from that was pressure. Mm. You know, gosh, I guess I have to be perfect or the world will end. And, you know, and then I got diagnosed with ADHD in high school, which frankly explained a lot ah. um, because I was getting a lot from my teachers. If you're so smart, how come you can't dot, dot, dot. And I, I'm like, I, everyone tells me all the time how smart I am. So there must be something wrong with me. Yeah. You feel that, huh? Yeah. In the yeah. absence of information, we create our own narratives mm. and those narratives tend to be catastrophic right? yeah and we you know? used to have this world that was really black and white and you, know, you probably say that in a lot of ways actually if you look back at the 50s and 60s but i mean you know it used to be probably a good example of is the is the is the ibm man of the 50s where you had everyone had to show up in black suit black tie black shoes black hat you know and you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't bring any colors or anything like that. You you had to. Everyone had to fit the same form. And I always have this picture in my mind of the of the Pink Floyd's music video. We don't need no education, or I think it's called something else. But basically, you know, these these children are being walked through British schools in this lockstep machinery. You know, one size fits all punch out. And I think a lot of us as in the in the crowd of being in that thirty percent spectrum. You know, we we got treated like the 
would you say the stupid pony or the stupid horse through school and and it definitely impacts your self-esteem your ability to want to learn or care absolutely Mm -hmm. and and then because if you're not framing this through the lens of you have a different brain Mm -hmm. and it defaults to it's either your fault as the kid or it's your parents fault Mm mm-hmm it's like a teacher isn't going to say, clearly, I can't teach you. And the administrators aren't going to say, clearly, our system is broken and can't fix kids like this. Mm-hmm. So it's a, you know, it's a real problem because the target defaulted to the kid. And that's too mm-hmm. much for any kid to carry. Yeah. You know? I mean, I say this all the time. Neurodivergence is not an excuse, right? I'm not going to let you say, I can't get a good job because I have ADHD. No, it's context, right? There's there's a reason so many of us end up in person-facing gigs like bartending mm-hmm. or being a barista or hosting a podcast or being a professional speaker, right? You don't want your ADHD or to be your accountant. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, my accountant does definitely does not have ADHD and he's hey, really job. You know, I'm not sure if I want to go on a bachelor party with him, but he's He's stable and secure and very consistent. And I, I want my lawyer, my accountant, and my surgeons to have that personality. Yeah. You don't want your surgeon doing the surgery on your heart. And he's like, Grow. Oh, was I doing something? Right. And then we're, you know, flop. What's this hard thing? <laughs> you know, my one of my favorite theater professors in high school, when I told her that I had gotten into improv and stand up comedy and ultimately professional speaking, she was like, of course. She said, you can say other people's words, but you are always best saying your own words. And I mean, if that's not the ADHD brain in, in function, I don't know what could. It's a great explanation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. And so I so what you're finding in going out in the world from your description of you, know, you started speaking and, and doing all this thing, you're finding that the world is, is starting to become maybe a little more inclusive and trying to understand people and 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 develop their strengths and, and utilize them like that. What made you want to get into psychiatry? Was it from your experience of growing up with ADHD and people not understanding you and maybe you were like, I need, want to understand myself or did you have a different purpose? I mean, it's definitely, that's a big piece of it. And, mm. you know, I think you want to be the adult you wish you had as a kid. <laughs> there you go. And, and it's funny because I don't actually live that. Both of my parents were psychologists as well. Oh, and really? I knew what to look for and they supported me really well. Uh-huh. But I looked around and saw kids who didn't have what I had. Yeah. And I thought to myself, all right, there's a lot of kids out there who need somebody like me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it allows me to get in there and educate the parents and educate the schools and educate the communities and also help the kid because, you know, what? smart doesn't mean your life is easy. Yeah. And yeah. That's, a, that's a thing people don't understand. In know? fact, it, it's harder because, as George Carlin said, you know, think how dumb the average person is and realize 50% of the people are stupider than that. So if you're really smart, it's hard because you have to deal with the other 50% of people who are dumber than the average. <laughs> yeah. But none of those people listen to this show. It's only no, no. 50% that do. Yeah, this is, this is a very discerning audience. It is. <laughs> it's driven off the stupid people for 16 years and it seems to be working so there you go but so what was it like growing up with two psychologist parents was it harder did they understand your 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 adhd yes and no 
I mean, there's the, the hardest thing about living with ADHD is the, everyone can understand that it means sustaining attention is hard mm -hmm. and everyone means that disorganization and time blindness are parts of that experience. But now we understand a lot more of the emotionality of that mm -hmm. and, and how there's a phenomenon called rejection sensitivity dysphoria or RSD. Oh, really? And the idea is that ADHD kids get somewhere around 17 times more negative feedback than their neurotypical peers. Hmm. So not quite your podcast numbers, but still pretty impressive. Yeah, we're and, getting there. And so your brain, which is wired to look for threat in your environment, starts anticipating more negative comments, more rejection. So you mm -hmm. get more sensitive to that. And then you have a dysphoric or not happy response to it. So the ADHD brain and really neurodivergent brains in general, though this tends to show up mostly in ADHD, is this idea of I'm looking in the environment for people to be upset with me. And then I'll get upset at the idea that they're upset with me, even if they're not, right? So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because hmm. if you're stomping around being like, why are you mad at me? The person you're talking to is like, dude, I'm not mad at you. You're like, yeah, dude, you're acting like you're mad at me. You're like, I'm not mad at you, dude. It's like your voice is changing. Now I'm mad at you because you keep saying you're mad at me. And I said, no, they're actually mad at you. Huh. And does the, does the scanning help in, you know, one of the things about ADHD is we're really good at strategy. Uh -huh. We're really good. I, 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 actually, I should just speak for myself. We're really good at strategy and mapping. Is that is part of the mapping of looking for that part of? I don't know what, what, you know, how, how do we, how does it, how does some of those things transform into the CEO disease that makes us so great at business? It's all about how much scaffolding you can put around you to manage hmm. that stuff. Cause if okay. you've got teachers and coaches and therapists and friends who get that, mm -hmm. they're going to be like, no, 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 dude, you're going to spin out. You're fine. And you're hmm. like, okay, like, I just need someone to tell me I'm fine. Cool. Just like the CEO doesn't worry about whether the janitor is mopping the baseboards in the women's bathroom in the first floor, the CEO is worried about the high-level, big-picture, 30,000-foot view things. Yeah. That's what plays to the ADHD strength, right? Yeah. I'm an idea guy. I was in grad school. I was our student body president, and my, my wife, was our, whom I met in grad school, was our vice president. And when we did awards at the end of the year, I gave her the NEC award. Because yes, I'm the head of the organization, but the head can't survive oh. without the neck. You know, it's like I'm the one. I was like, guys, I have these great ideas, and we're going to do these things, and they're going to be awesome. And then my wife would put the paperwork down, like, and look, I filled out the form so we can actually do his ideas. I'm like, thank you, honey. <laughs> <laughs> that's why this. That's why the ADHD or can be the CEO. Yes, but you need people who are going to. You need a good team around you. You but need those accountant types that can be the stable. Tell me about it. Right? <laughs> yeah. I was I was really lucky in how I fell into this. Me and my I you know me and my friend had been friends since we were twelve in junior high, and I was always the ADH idea guy, and he was a very simple dude who who he could be the accountant sort of person. Mm 
and he could do the mundane, the, 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 re the repetitive tasks that make me mental, but I could be the visionary. And after somewhere in our 20, about 10 years, probably after we met in our around 22, I think I was, or I don't know, he might've been 22. Anyway, I don't know why I'm going on about this, but somewhere around 22, we started our first company together. I'd had a few companies before that, but this is the first real one that was the home runner. And we started an empire of companies that ran for 13 years with him and I together and further from me. And we had a great team because we'd been friends forever. We could trust each other beyond a shadow of a doubt. And then I could be the visionary, the CEO, and come up with all the you know, crazy ideas and build models and, and stuff like that. And he could be the one who could apply it. And yep. so... I'd never really given thought to the setup of it. Should this be a business setup that should work? It just kind of happened. Yeah. And, and, and so you're right, that whole neck part and, and having the, you know, the grounding, if you will, or, or the people who can take those ideas and make them work to the 70% of the weird people who, who aren't in the exceptional class. You can do it. So, but it's great that these, you know, we've had a lot of friends that are neurodivergent that have been on multiple times. Uh, I've got a lot of friends who are autistic and they're out sharing the message of, you know, the spectrum and, and, you know, the importance of these people. And, you know, I learned a long time ago in my companies very early on that I was not the purveyor of every greatest idea in the world. In fact, some ideas are quite painfully expensive in losses. And uh, thankfully I hit more home runs than I hit whiffs. You know, I had to learn that there's, there's ideas that come from everywhere and, and there's no human being that doesn't have the ability, I think, to come up with great ideas if they're given the opportunities and you just never know. I mean, <clears throat> the head of Google right now grew up on a dirt floor in, in India. He was born yeah. on and raised that way, dirt poor. Steve Jobs was an immigrant, a family of immigrants who came from, I think it was, was it Iran or Iraq or one of those places, Pakistan? It, it came from somewhere. It, it came from somewhere. You know, there's, there's no corner on great ideas and to throw people away or dismiss them or be prejudiced against them because, you know, they, they must, they're not like us. And you're just like, you watch the Kardashians all day long. Give me a break. Right. <laughs> miss, miss me with that please would you yeah we well, lost the kardashian crown a long time ago so. yeah oh no <laughs> so sad and it's and that's sort of the next step in my professional evolution is doing more stuff with companies and organizations hmm. because we have this pervasive idea that kids and i'm going to use giant air quotes here outgrow their neurodivergence when they turn 18, but that's convenient for the system because that's when we have to stop supporting them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I have neurodivergent kids who are navigating college who are doing it by hooks and crooks and lots of caffeine. Yeah. It, it's one of those things like those kids are growing up, graduating through the schools, getting master's degrees, getting advanced degrees, getting jobs, starting families with the same brain. Mm -hmm. So we need to find parenting strategies that work for ADHDers. We need to find dating strategies that work for autistic people. We need to find ways to help dyslexic people at work. Mm -hmm. And you can switch around the neurodivergent pieces like we're playing three-card Monty, but the idea is still the same. Yeah. So now I can go into an organization and say, listen, you're an organization of X number of people, which means by the numbers, you have Y number of neurodivergent people here on staff. Mm -hmm. You don't create an environment that is inclusive to that. 
those people are going to suffer in silence. And there you're you going to follow them because you're like, you know, it's weird how Johnny can't keep his 16 F forms in order. We should fire him. Whereas yeah. maybe Johnny's a great sales guy who's drowning in the mailroom. Yeah, you can't do that to your salespeople. Those those people are special. They understand human nature, and and you can't you 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 TPS the report out of those folks, and you're going to kill your sales. Yeah. No, would you say you've been missing a lot of work lately? <laughs> yeah, I love that movie, Office Office Space. If you're not familiar with the, the TPS report reference, so you know you you mentioned something about parenting, and I think this is something that's also in your field is helping parents understand their children on on top of CEOs and business people as well. Talk talk to a little bit about why that's important that parents need to understand, you know neurodiversity in their children and and how just because the kid's ADHD doesn't mean he's acting out or he's a bad child. Yeah. So I I often think about this. I worked with a family once who the mom was very frazzled that the house was messier than she wanted it to be and all she wanted was for kids to pitch in. And she was like, so I created a system for my kid to organize her room and put things in places and all these things are going to be fine. And I'm just so mad because she won't listen to me. She's not doing this system. So I let the mom sort of go on this rant for a while. And then I said, okay, so, so this is a really great area for us to intervene on. <clears throat> Remind me, how old is your daughter? And she goes, she's nine. And I was like, ma'am, I'm going to say this from a place of love, but there's no way a nine-year-old can do this system that you're talking about. It that's way too abstract for a nine-year-old. This is a nine-year-old with an IQ of 147. Like this is a brilliant nine-year-old. And we forget when you've got neurodivergent people, we tend to treat them simultaneously at the highest strengths and their lowest weaknesses. So Mm. it's this weird dichotomy of like, why are you so great? And why do you suck so much? Where it's, let's not forget she's nine. Right. And yes, this child, still a child, right? If the pants aren't alphabetized, nobody loses. Is she old enough to put the pants in the pants drawer? Absolutely. So let's start there and then we can build upwards towards something a little bit more elaborate. And the mom, you could tell it was like a really seminal moment for the mom because she was, she had gotten sucked into this highest highs narrative. And you know, the kid was a great kid, he is a great kid. And, you know, I mean, it's the thing, if we don't meet people where they are, we are mm-hmm. going to constantly lose them for the spiky parts of their narrative. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, that's good or bad. You, you can't change, you can't shame someone into changing. You've got to meet them where they are and guide them towards where we need to go. Right? I think it's a real important message you're saying right there. Many people where they are understanding. You know, it sounds like the mother has a certain type of brain or pattern or or mapping that she has. It sounds like she's trying to force adulthood on a kid. Really, yep. I mean, there's, you know, someone told me I, I never had kids because uh, I don't like them. But so, no, I I like kids. I just don't like changing diapers. I'm not doing it. And I like sleep too much. I really enjoy sleep, and I enjoy money and having it. So there you go. So. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said parenting is like parenting with kids is like standing in a window and throwing your money out the window all the time. But jokes aside, folks, you know it's it's uh, you try and force 
someone told me a long time ago a really important thing about kids that I used in my pseudo stepdadding I've I've had to be exposed to, and they go, you know, you make a hallway for kids, but you have to make it wide enough to where they can bounce around and they can figure stuff out and they can learn and and they can be kids. But you know, there has to be some containment, but you can't make it like a straitjacket. Yeah, yeah. the The term I use for that is backyarding. Backyarding. Because when I was a kid and super high energy and always was creating things, sometimes I drove my mom crazy. So she would just say, go play in the backyard, which had a fence around it. There was a big rectangular backyard. We grew up in a nice town. And then I could play Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or climb trees or fight bears. But I was, you know, I was not going to get hit by a car because there was a fence around the backyard. So I still call it this. I call it backyarding. Because kids need room to play and get messy and test boundaries. Use their imagination, too, especially. Super important. We have bled the joy, the color out of childhood. We want kids to be little adults. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've taken away, I think, recess in a lot of schools now, too. And you're like, what the hell? That's that's a time when you go blow out your ADHD energy and then wear yourself out for school. I mean... The recess has decreased across the nation by 82% in the last wow. 10 years. That's crazy. 82%. That's, mm. I mean. Dude, I was a rocket ship going off to school with recess. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I, I talk, when I talk to administrators, I'm like, listen, I get that you think taking away recess is a good punishment. You are making everybody's lives harder if you mm-hmm. don't want that ADHD kid running around at lunchtime. Make them write extra stuff or we'll, we'll come up with something creative. But you, I mean, I had a kid I worked with once, brilliant runner, ADHD as long as the, as the day was long. And the, and his principles, I'm sick of his acting out. We're going to take away cross country. I'm like, if you do that, he'll never come back to school. You'll lose him. Yep. And he's maybe that's what he deserves because school's not about cross country. Wow. I listen, objectively, you're right. But also, if you want the kid to be the best version of himself, he's got to be able to move his body enough that he can learn. And brain and body are so interrelated, and we tend not to see it that way. And, I mean, so many great CEOs. I mean, we're talking people who are on the top echelons of companies, so many great entrepreneurs, the people who change the world. We're all ADHD. There's a reason they call it the CEO disease. Mm-hmm. And without us, I think this world would be very freaking boring, different, and lame, and we'd probably all just be IBM men. I, I, I think there would be less innovation, less success in the world. I mean, I think I don't know if someone's ever done a profile on like the top people on the Forbes 400, but I imagine a lot of them, if they didn't inherit money, and even if they did, they probably still ADHD because the pressure. And you know, it, it's it's a disease that makes you know i've learned to embrace it and love it and go how do we roll with this and you're right you you mentioned something earlier that i, I did want to expand on um you know i'm 56 i still have adhd it died off a little bit when my testosterone dropped evidently in the last few years but i recently got testosterone therapy and i'm using this as an ad to say check your testosterone if you're a man above 40 but man it's back like avengers that trt now that they up my they leveled off my oil yeah, it's it's back. Fifty six years old, and I still got it. So yeah. it doesn't go away. <laughs> but you got to learn to ride it like a wave. <laughs> yeah. And 
And if you can have an environment that understands that, so you meet them at step eight and you don't have to start at step one every single time because that's exhausting. Yeah. You know, the ADHD doesn't want to have to tell the whole story every, every, every single time, 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 over and over and over and over and over. Mm. What they want, what they need is an environment that go that you can say, I'm having a bad ADHD day and they go, cool, how can I support you? There you right? go. And whether that's true, whether you're six, 16, 26 or 66 mm-hmm. and you know, and, and as we embrace this neurodiversity movement, you know, people are raising their hands at work. They're being brave and vulnerable. And they're saying, yeah, listen, I had an IEP as a kid and I still need that kind of support. Can I get that at work? And I'm like, absolutely you can. I mean, we can talk to HR, we can talk to your DEIB people. You know, I have a lot of DEI workers reach out to me on LinkedIn and say, how do we have these conversations at our law firms, at our pharmaceutical companies, at our, I'm so excited to work with, there's a, there's a auto repair shop by me who re, just reached out there. Like, we think we got a lot of these neurodivergents here, help us. And I'm like, because I mean, think about it. Who's really good with their hands and not so great with the social skills if we're speaking broadly, right? Yeah. It's a traditional autistic profile, right? How mm-hmm. do we support those people? You know, and I don't, that, that's not actually my repair shop. I feel a little bit bad about it, but I'm like, absolutely. We'll get in there and we'll talk about what this stuff looks like and feels like, because once we know we can empower people, right? Mm-hmm. My aunt always said, do as well as you can until you know better and then do better. Yep. Yep. You know, I, I didn't know what ADHD was. And in my age of the nineties, you know, this wasn't anxiety and different things weren't really talked about. I think depression, I think you knew what depression was, but it wasn't in the societal norm of culture, at least not the one I was a part of. And so when I started, I, I had always been ADHD when I was young, I would check the door 20 times at night to make sure it was locked, even though I checked it 20 times, you know, I was one of those kids. My brother, I think would wash his hands till they bled. You know, that sort of shit. And so we had ADHD pretty bad. I would drum on my desk in school and be yelled at constantly for not paying attention and not getting a grade. <laughs> whatever. But I would think about things that were really important that shaped my life. And thank God for that. But yeah, I mean, back then we still had a lot of men in schools and even even the men were would still struggle with me. Nowadays, there's a real problem where it's just mostly women running schools and and, and boys are being treated as dysfunctional girls, which is a real problem. And we've had a lot of psychologists and authors on, please go Google that data. And, and in fact, if anything, if you have boys nowadays, you have to kind of look at s- certain schools and what to put them in that understand what boys are going through. I think some of your comments from principals and stuff, I think a lot of that's where that's coming from, understanding what men are going through and ADHD boys, ADHD boys, people on the spectrum, all of these things, just trying, they're just trying to cram them into one model fits all. And usually it's a dysfunctional girl model. You just need to be like the girls. You need to calm down. You need not act out. You not. You need not be boys. And you're like, yeah. genetically, we're boys. Roll yeah. with it, honey. And that's really important. And and I think that's being lost more so in our education system there before. And and probably I think companies are really great at DIY or DEI programs, yeah. diversity inclusion and stuff. Sometimes I think it can go too far. I'm not a big fan of of what's the what's the thing that they do with the the slights. The the micro microaggression stuff, that's going too far. Stop it. That's too much. That's emotionalism. But there's there's a way to 
make this balance where we appreciate people. As a CEO, you know, you have to get in people's heads and, and understand them, figure them out, bring bring out the best of them. As a manager, you have to do the same. If you're working with other people, you need to understand the people you're working with. <clears throat> you can't dismiss certain people and just go, this person, you know, they're just not as bright because, I don't know, they drum on their desk or they behave in a, in a way that I don't fully understand. You know, all of my employees that I always had, I always had to learn that they were all different and then I had to understand each one of them, their psychology, sometimes their psychosis. <laughs> I had to understand my own psychosis. And and that made it so that I could tap into them for the best and help them achieve what they wanted to do and thereby help achieve what I wanted to do in servant leadership. And that it's just so important. And and you can't dismiss anyone nowadays unless they're really, really stupid. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just being yeah. sure. But, you know, everyone has, everyone has their own thing and, and you've got to, you know, when you're running giant companies and even small companies, you've got to understand how your people operate and how to get the best out of them and help, how to help them achieve what they want to achieve. And if they feel like they're a part of your big vision and, and your thing, then you're going to have a better chance of achieving it than just trying to, I don't know, ram it down everyone's throat. Like I've mentioned in the one size fits all education system. I mean, absolutely. Right. And yeah. You know, and I think within that paradigm of, you know, let like treating people as people with different needs, right? Mm -hmm. I would, I would respectfully tweak what you said. Mm -hmm. And the idea is there are, I almost find it more helpful to talk about in terms of like energy levels, like extroverts and introverts, Mm -hmm. right? Because like, I'm a guy who presents in some atypical ways for masculinity, right? Like I was a theater kid, right? Mm. There were people who were like, oh, so you're gay? What's your boyfriend's name? And I'm like, no, I'm not. Because you were in theater, they assumed you. And so it's like, there's gotta be room for that kind of masculinity. Just, I mean, and this is sort of a funny side to that. Like one of the girls I dated in high school was a really amazing basketball player. She played pro basketball in Europe. And it was like, people like, oh, so could you beat her one-on-one? I was like, she is a professional basketball yes, that's her job like, wipe the floor with me <laughs> like you know so there needs to be room for putting you know like say let's not jam people into boxes yeah meet people were there learn about them like you said and say learn about oh, their strengths put them in areas that play to their strengths mm-hmm. and shuffle them away from areas that drag them down that punch holes in their bucket yeah then no matter how you walk through those doors i'm putting you in positions to you know, to be successful. Right. And, you know, I, you know, like I said, the CEO of Google, you know, grew up on a dirt floor, right there. There's a lot of close-minded people out there who'd be like, that person could never be a CEO. Who says not? Who says no? You, you know, if you're capable, then Mm -hmm. you have, you deserve every, every opportunity to go to the highest place you can fly. Mm -hmm. And that to me is, the heart of what I do because it's so easy to internalize all this misinformation and bad <clears throat> science and you know like the old you know the old this is just you know you're just not trying hard enough you know what I don't know a lot of ADHDers who don't try hard yeah a lot of ADHDers who don't try smart and that's a different thing but there you go. And I mean, there's a lot of successful autistic people. One other thing you talk about too, I see here is dyslexia. There's a ton of like super successful people that have dyslexia. Oh yeah. I mean, we could go on the list. I mean, Oprah Winfrey, I think, uh, uh, 
I mean, just, you go down the whole list of stars and, and people and success. I mean, the, you know, it's, uh, well, how do we, how do we overcome this? You know, cause there's a lot of diversity inclusion and stuff going on and, and stuff, but at the core of our human nature, it seems like we have some real problems with prejudice and jumping to conclusions. And, and I think part of it is wired into our, our monkey brain, our, our caveman brain, where we're designed to try and make quick assessments of people to, you know, determine whether we're in fight or flight mode in some sort of tribal caveman dinosaur society. I'm just joking around. People don't write me. The cavemans and dinosaurs probably weren't together. I know that, but you know, they were, they were, you had to determine, okay, is the man, woman or creature coming at me a fight or flight situation? Are they a danger? Are they a, are they a threat? Are they a friend? What sort of response do you need to merit? And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm floating this theory out there, I think the problem with that is it's expanded to a point that we use it for a lot of quick judgment, a lot of discrimination, a lot of different other issues that, you know, we're trying to deal with, with diversity and inclusion, people of the LGBT community, autism, dyslexia, giftedness, ADHD, all the things we're talking about, and and probably everything else, racism, all the different biases that we have where we slight human beings and, and, and sometimes we're horrible to them. Is that, is that really what we, we kind of have to constantly fight at our core, that nature of us that causes this prejudice? I mean, are you, you said it beautifully. I mean, mm-hmm. when we were cavemen running through the jungle and you heard something rustling in the bushes, that threat detection system kicks in and says, run. Those mm-hmm. people stayed alive and protected their genetic code. Yep. The people who were like charged into the bushes after them, sometimes they got lunch and sometimes they were lunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of the, this actually <laughs> one of the talks I give all mm-hmm. about managing anxiety, right? It's not about, curing it it's not about overcoming it it's about finding ways to make it work for you right Mm -hmm. so we've got these incredible threat detection systems but they are they are absolutely wired for living on the african savannah three hundred thousand years ago they're not so much wired for i didn't get as many mentions on tiktok as i wanted to but that that system cascades and doesn't know any better it's like i'm in danger ah yeah you know, so one of the things that we do is when things show up as different or unexpected, our brains say it's a lot easier to just slam the door on that. It's like, oh, I, don't, I don't know what that is. And then because our brains like to be right, mm-hmm. our brains seek out information that proves us. Yeah. You know, and the activating system mm-hmm. where we collect data to support whatever sort of crazy bullshit we believe. You know, I've always been enthralled by that. I grew up in a cult. And so I, and I knew it was bullshit from the time I was three. Somehow I was born a king where I just knew certain things. And uh, that or I figure them out as a survival mode of of ADHD is probably more accurate. But we'll go with the king thing first because I'm narcissistic and dark triad traits are how I learned to survive. And they feel really good. I mean, they might be dark triad, but they're really enjoyable sometimes. Anyway, folks, but so I, 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 I've studied why people believe things from the beginning of time. Why can a person come up with a belief that there are blue Martians living amongst us or lizard people, and then they can expand it into whole ideology where they have books and knowledge and all the supporting biases that are built from that reticular activating system that collects the data that they have. And yeah, it's really interesting to me. I, I, the other part of it is too, it's kind of lazy thinking, right? When you, when you look at somebody and you, 
hold certain biases. It's kind of a, just a way to be freaking lazy so you don't have to learn anything maybe too. I don't know. Is that true or just are just people just content in their bias? It's it's less lazy. It's the the fancy psychology word for it is egocentric, oh. which basically means you know, if you love um, you know, if you love a particular actor hmm. and you spend a lot of time and money watching this actor's movies and then somebody says, hey, man, you heard that he's an awful person, right? He does hmm. all these terrible things. Your brain goes, I don't. I don't want to believe that because I've already spent all this time and money liking this guy. And he so seems I'm, so wonderful being on camera. So I'm just going to ignore that, push it away because it challenges this thought in a way that feels very uncomfortable to me. Ah, the uncomfortableness. Yeah. And our brains like to be right, but their primary job is to protect us. Yeah. So it's the sort of thing like the way we, the way we, the language I often use to talk about this is what we call first thought, second thought. So if you're walking down a street and you hear, you see a, a dog in an alley and it's growling and you're like, your first thought goes, Oh, danger. Mm -hmm. And sometimes your first thought's right. And you should run away. Mm -hmm. sometimes you stick around what's my second thought here and you realize the dog is growling because it's leash is stuck under a dumpster and it's uh -huh. growling to get somebody's attention because hey i'm stuck so you go over and the dog tackles you and is licking your face like oh and you go return it to its owner mm -hmm. right so you know You're i mean i was took my kids on a walk the other day and you know and i think like a lot of us neurodivergent people we put out this sort of vibe and like other neurodivergency is like, you know, to make a very nerdy reference, you know, the beacons are lit, Gondor calls for aid, right? <laughs> and I'm walking through the forest with my kids and this little girl comes up to me and she starts rattling off information about the font on the signs in this park. And of course, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm vibing it. I'm like, let's go. And her dad goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, hey, I literally said it was like, listen, first thought, second thought, because yes, I'm this guy in my real life. I'm like, first thought. There's a kid I don't know running at me. Second thought is, oh, she's sharing a thing she's super passionate about. And the guy literally was like, do, do you have a card? <laughs> you know, and it's one of those things like if you can tolerate that moment of discomfort, so many more people and experiences become available to you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because you're pushing back on that part of your body that goes, if you do this, you're absolutely going to die. And yeah. Actually, probably not. Yeah. I tuned in this really hard. My audience has heard me talk about it over the years. But after uh, something that happened in 2016, I was trying to figure out why. I was trying to figure out the terms of white nationalism and what this was. And it was rebranded KKK. And I was trying to figure out these terms that they were using that I used. I mean, I didn't use them specifically, but every now and then I reference one like, like culture. And I'm like, well, culture's culture. And turns out their, you know, their version's a little different. <laughs> maybe. A little, a little coded, maybe. <laughs> Our culture doesn't mean like everyone's culture. Big surprise there, people. Anyway, I was trying to figure these things out. And I was like, you know, I, I think I don't have a lot of biases and prejudices. And I started, and I, and I came with this system. I just kind of made it up in my head where I was like, you know what? Let's see if I still have any biases because I've been using some of these words these people are using and I don't really want to use these words anymore because I'm getting thrown in with them if I do. And so I, I started, 
I, I started doing this experiment, and may, I, don't, I don't know if there's anything that triggered it that, that was like, "Hey, here's an experiment you should do." But I was like, you know, let's let's find out if I have more biases than I think I do. And so I started doing a thought experiment where every time I go to the store in Las Vegas, I would listen to my thoughts on that fight or flight mode, where I would determine the faces that I saw, the people I saw, what my initial impressions were. And it was eye-opening. I remember I saw a guy who was a big white guy who probably looks like me, and, and he had a Harley Davidson jacket on, and, you know, I had the Harley Davidson sort of, you know, rough guy gang look. And, uh, man, I came up with some things on him. And, and you know, because I've hung out with Harley Davidson dudes when I was young. And I, and then my brain would listen to, the, would listen to itself, and I'd be like, what the fuck did you just come up with? I mean, you don't know if that Harley Davidson guy's ever been in prison. You don't know if he's carrying a weapon. You know anything about? He just might be a nice guy who just kind of likes the look. Yeah. You know, he's probably not selling meth. You know, were were you coming up with some of these things? And I would go through that as I would go through the store, and I would question my assumptions and be like, "Yeah, the, the stuff you're coming up with in your head is insane, dude. You have no idea who this person is, or what their background is, or." Or, or or anything. You have no idea. And look at these thoughts that you're coming up with. And here I thought I was pretty, you know, didn't have a lot of biases and prejudices and discrimination stuff. And the stuff I would come up with is like insane. And I'm just like, dude, you need to calm the hell down with some of these assumptions you're making. You don't know who people are. Yeah. And that's why I love the show is it get to get people on the show and learn who people are. And I enjoy learning from people. But yeah, it was a great experiment to learn from. I Everyone should go through it, I think, in my my idea yeah <clears throat> there you go um so let's wrap up the show we've been having a lot of fun with this we normally don't go this long but we've had a great time so give us your final offer to people on what people can get at your website what people can do to utilize your services etc cetera, etc cetera. so the idea i guess the number one thing is the world is built for neurotypical people because there's a lot more of them than there are of us mm-hmm. so so if you're a manager or if you're a principal of a school or if you have a very large family and you're like, what you're talking about doesn't describe me, but it does, it describes people I care about, people who are in my orbits, then I would very much invite you to talk to me because the idea that meeting these people where they are and giving them their own weirdly shaped holes to fit into rather than trying to cram all these round pegs into square holes, then you're giving those people the best chance to contribute to these circles that they operate in, Mm. whether that's work or school or community service or whatever it might be. And, and when you put play to people's strengths, it becomes a rising tide that lifts all boats. There you go. Rising tide does better when we play to people's strengths, you know, and think about the times in your life where people accommodated something you're not so good at or worked with you and you're going to realize people have done that for you and it helped you. And if you have an atypical brain trying to make it in a society not built for you mm-hmm. you can make the connection that, oh, wow, if me with my regular brain benefited from this, someone with an atypical brain would logically benefit much more from mm-hmm. it. And we don't need everybody to sit in their own little palace, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the changes we make are simple and cheap, if not free. And based from a place of compassion and understanding. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, you know, I don't have hard numbers on this, but every time we invest in this, every time we make somebody's life a little easier, mm-hmm. it 
back a thousand percent. I mean, it is just happier kids, happier people, meek for happier, more productive organizations, and everybody wins. There you go. So give people your final thoughts and pitch on what they can do by hiring you, how they can hire you, how they can reach out to you on your website, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's www.drmattsukreski.com. And I'm very Googleable because I have a very unique name. So just punch Dr. Matt Sikreski into into Google or Spotify, and then I pop up a lot of places. But the biggest thing is that the more we know, the better we can do. And it doesn't matter if you're coming at this from a place of, I raised six ADHD kids, I get it, I want to tweak what I know, or I'm not even sure if this whole ADHD thing's not a myth, but... He made some decent points, and I want to learn a little bit more about that. My job, the reason I'm on this planet is to help people live better lives. And when that starts from a place of brain science, then we know more, we do better, and everybody improves. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, I mean, (laughs) it's a pretty good calling, and I like doing it, and I I like to think I'm pretty good at it. So there you go. And they can reach out to your website. Give us the website one more time. So for speaking, it's drmatsukreski.com. For therapy, it's the neurodiversitycollective.com. You know, two hats, two companies, but you know, CEO mindset, right? Living that life. There you uh, go. ADHD. <laughs> why would I focus on one thing? Why do one company when you can do oh. a bunch? Yeah. <laughs> I always order flights of beer. You know, I, I can't ever choose one thing. So that's true. Yeah, but that's a that's a good thing. Flights of beer. Yeah, yeah I agree. Beer is necessary. Yeah. So thank you very much for coming on the show. This has been a really brilliant discussion. The 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 funds that we have are the ones that go along. So thank you very much for coming on, Matthew. We really appreciate it. Chris, it was a pleasure. You're an awesome host, and I mean, I thought we got a lot done, which there is pretty go. cool. There you go. We we educated the people. Now, now go out there, folks, and quit being discriminatory to everybody and play on people's strengths. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Go to Goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Foss, LinkedIn.com, Fortress Chris Foss, Chris Foss, one of the TikTok and all those crazy places we are on the internet. Be good to each other. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys next time. And that shouldn't.